HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because, to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from, I don't know, like, you know, around 12, 12, 15, something like this, from Alberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Uh, today we have already in the studio, as usual, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Nastasia? Good. Yeah? Mm-hmm. We got David in the booth. What up? Nothing. Uh, we're waiting on, so, by the way. I was having one of my usual unpleasant uh, uh, text exchanges with Nastasia earlier this morning, and I was saying I think we should change your name from the hammer to the to the pit bull because it's the biting for no reason. Uh, look, oh, whoa, I shouldn't go that way. Like biting for no reason, I shouldn't make a joke at pit bulls' you expense. Because we're, do, yeah. do you know that pit bulls like are like so discriminated against that uh, basically in the New York and this is what made me think of it in the New York City shelter system, right? Almost, I mean, I, I don't know about the public shelters, but in like the private shelters, like, uh, by the way, I just got another dog over the, over the weekend. Nastasia is doing her, her, uh, like moron head shake. Mm-hmm. Is that the moron head shake? Mm-hmm. Yes. The moron head shake. I mean, it's not a, she's not mad at me. It's not like a vegan face. It's just a moron head shake. Anyways, so I went to go get this dog and, um, apparently any small dog can get adopted here. Any, uh, it basically pits can't get adopted. And pit mixes. And so, you know, if you can, you should adopt a pit mix. Why didn't you? I needed a, like, look, I already have a dog, a large dog. The odds that, like, 
I would it, I would get the okay, get the high sign for adopting another large dog, roughly zero. You know, I think my kids like are old enough now to take on a dog that has some territorial you know, like uh, traits, whereas like when they were a lot younger, you know, you get a little nervous of having any kind of territorial dog around. So the lab was awesome, which is also shelter dog is awesome. But like um, at this point they can handle it, but I, you know, I couldn't handle it big. So it's this miniature, like they, I said, uh, what do you think the mix is? The guy goes, Heinz 57. Cause it's just like a, like a mixed mutt. But anyway, if any of you are in the New York area and want to go to a shelter, I highly recommend Sean Casey Animal Rescue in Brooklyn. You can just go walk dogs. Uh, you, you, know, you show them your driver's license and you just walk dogs. You don't need to take one. But if you're a dog person and you show up and you start walking dogs, be aware that there's a high likelihood that you'll end up with one. Do you know what I mean? Because they're cute. Mm-hmm. Dogs, are, dogs, are, dogs are cute. This guy looks like a little miniature version of my lab, even though it's like, I don't think there's any lab in it. So Dax, my young son, was walking the small dog, and I was walking the big dog, and it's like a mini me walking a mini version of my other dog. It's kind of it's kind of crazy. Nutty. What's that called? Mini me? No, there's like a thing for that. There's a thing for a shrunken version of you and your dog walking <laughs> next to you down the street. No. Man, they didn't teach me that in, in vocabulary school. Hey, Dave, we got a caller on the line. It's John Carson, who is Chef Emily Peterson's father. Has a question for you. Wow, nice. How you doing? Uh, wel- welcome to the uh, to the show. What's uh, what's up? Uh, I make cocktail sauce for shrimp and oysters and that kind of stuff. Sure. We use we use Heinz ketchup. And used to use Gold's horseradish. Right. And there's a, a assortment of other ingredients, which you may or may not need to know for, for this. But when you would make the cock, that it would be about the consistency of ketchup. And you could put that in the refrigerator overnight and take it out the next day, and it would still be the same consistency change. Right. A friend of mine gave me homemade horseradish that he makes. And I, I did everything exactly the same. When you put the, the cocktail sauce in the refrigerator, 24 hours later, it, it has coagulated. It's, it's, it's like as solid as jello. Huh. And why is that happening? That is very interesting. I don't know. So, gold, so like Gold's, I haven't purchased uh, Gold's in a while. For those of you that don't remember, Gold's is like it's the tall, skinny bottle uh, and it comes in either with beet or without beet uh, horseradish uh, grated that you get in, um, in in supermarkets. It's like the brand that like we all grew up with. I do, I'm trying to remember the label on Gold's. Does is it Gold's have anything in it, or is it just shredded horseradish? Don't do they vinegar it? There's vinegar in it. Emily actually read the ingredients, and there's nothing. That, and she thought it, it could have something to do. With the and in the and that the acidity level in the homemade horseradish was different, but I don't, you know, I don't know. But this is uh, the guy who makes the horseradish. He knew that was going to happen, and he said it's not as bad as if if you use Hunt's ketchup. But you know, why would you, you know, use Hunt's? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's here's my here's my only theory. You're, you're, does your friend not add anything? No offense to Hunts, but I mean Heinz is the ketchup. Please, anyway. Um, right, right. Um, does your friend not add anything to the horseradish? Is no, it's it, in his horseradish. It's very simple. It's it's horseradish. There's no beets added, so it's horseradish, right. vinegar, pepper, 
salt and a little bit of sugar, and that's it. Huh? See, here's what I here's what I'm thinking. Um, my guess, and this is just a guess, is that. Uh, there's a lower liquid content in your buddy's uh, horseradish, and straight up, that if you add a little bit of vinegar when you did it, that it would all turn out. There are two things that I think could be happening here. I don't believe Gold's horseradish is pasteurized, but I'm not sure, in which case, if it's like a pectin-leaking thing, that could be an issue, but, but, I, but I don't know. Um, my guess is it's a, a liquid thing. Ketchup is very, very – is basically – it's what's called like a, a thixotropic uh, – Liquid, so that under under sheer uh, under sheer ketchup is acts like a liquid, and when it's not under sheer, it acts like a, a solid, right? And my guess is is that the horseradish is um, is that horseradish with a certain amount of liquid keeps that thixotropic balance the same. Because remember, horseradish is also fibrous, so it's going to add some stability uh, or could add stability, almost like fiberglass to it. And then if the liquid level is a little bit higher. It'll go v- liquidy very quickly, as ketchup does. And if the liquid balance is lower, then it'll set up even uh, firmer. By the way, we now have in the studio who can also weigh in, weigh in on your question, uh, Harold, Harold McGee, the master blaster of science in the in the as it, as it relates to the delicious. So, Harold, the question we have on see whether you have anything else. I know you heard the tail hey, end of what I was saying. Hey, hey, <laughs> I heard I hear you heard the tail end of what I was saying there. But uh, the question was, we have a, a horseradish. Uh, we have a cocktail sauce made with. Uh, everything else remains the same. Heinz ketchup and you know uh, whatever other you know flavor adjustments are added to it. And either the store bought Gold's brand, which is the East Coast brand, which you may remember uh, might be West Coast too, of prepared horseradish, versus someone else's homemade horseradish. And the home homemade horseradish makes it set solid into a gel. And my guess is it's just that the cocktail sauce is extremely sensitive to liquid balance. Huh? Sets into a gel. That's a new one on me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know of any. I don't know of any um, uh, special hydrocolloid in horseradish that uh, you know may or may not be activated. Although I could be wrong. I, I don't know about that either, but I do know that horseradish has a very active uh, peroxidase enzyme, and that might be doing something that allows crosslinking that wouldn't otherwise take place. Hmm. About is is the store bought horseradish um, pasteurized? That's uh, the question. I bet. I mean, how how else would it be shelf stable? I mean, it's horseradish. I don't know. I mean, I buy. It's, refri- it, it's refrigerated. But when you buy gold, it's definitely in the refrigerated system. But it may be pasteurized, and the pasteurization may you know stop some of whatever they are. The the, the, the from and when this gels, it gels. I mean, it. it not you know it's just it's not just like it's thicker it's it, i mean there's a there's a chemical reaction going on here that it you know it, it's 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 a solid mass well tomatoes are full of pectin so uh i you know i don't know much about horseradish but i mean if there is some sort of cross-linking going on i mean that's plausible i guess mm-hmm. so you're saying that that's you know you're lucky that harold stopped by <laughs> You know, yeah, and, and that's got to be something. What it is, I'm going to check and see if the gold is pasteurized, and if that's it, you know. And and then the other thing is, do you care? I mean, I've I've experimented around with just adding a little water to it the next day and mixing it up, and it and it comes back and it's fine. But I was just curious why why that happens, you know. And it's got to be something like that that. The, the, it's some kind of reaction with the pectin in the ketchup. Hmm. Well, so yeah, so I would look. Uh, we we could look into like Harold's thing, and so I guess he, 
But you do say you add a little bit of water and it comes back. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that, so that doesn't sound so much to me like cross-linking. Well, unless it just bre- unless you just unless adding liquid, you're literally just breaking it, almost like you'd be making a fluid gel. In which case, yeah. you're taking a light gel and breaking it, you know, into a into a fluid gel. After you break it and it comes back, does it hold peaks better than regular? I mean, cocktail sauce holds a peak pretty well as is because it's you know it's the thixotropic thing. So it's I, I haven't I haven't really experimented with it that much. Hmm. One of those things. Now it's like a, you can't scratch. I got to figure this out. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll uh, I'll try to remember over the uh, over the week to do some searches on uh, horseradish and uh, and pectin and gelling. See whether I can figure anything out. Yeah. You know, maybe Harold will too. I never know what. Yeah. You, you yeah. never know what's going to pique Harold's interest. <laughs> this sounds very interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. play around with it this weekend. All right. Weekend. Well, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll look into it. All right. Well, thanks. It's a good one. All right, all right. If, if, if necessary, I could send you some samples, and and you can you can look at this. Yeah, and I could drop some off at the radio station. I go I go into Brooklyn about every other week, and I've actually been there on Emily's show a couple of times. I can make it a point of, of I can bring you. I tell you what I can do. I can bring you the ingredients, and you can put it together, and then you can you can watch it gel. That sounds great. I'll do it. Yeah. And then you get some cocktail sauce out of the deal. Yeah, all right, which is you know always good. I like uh, especially in the summertime. I you know I like some uh, cold shrimp and cocktail sauce. You like some cold shrimp and cocktail sauce, does? It's okay. Yeah. Wait, you're not a fan yeah. of. Wait, is it a fan? You're not yeah. a fan of cocktail sauce. You're not a fan of cold shrimp. Both. I don't choose it. I'll right. eat it. I'll mm. eat it. All right. All right. Well, thanks. Another yet another thing. Uh, although this no, is better than it. normal, Nastasia. She's I'll like, it. I'll eat it. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, and Harold's here, so I'm sure people are going to want to call in for some Harold McGee style questions. A couple of things. One. Harold was here last week for Impossible Burger, Urger, 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 right? And then you're actually here again for the Impossible uh, Food Group, right? That's right. Yeah. 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 The sweet – and I don't know if anyone's going to want to call in and ask questions about uh, GMO, uh, heme protein, uh, vegetable, coconut, m- you know, oil, um, burger aloids. Sounds more and more delicious. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, like it's interesting. It's, it's like, I think it's like of the level of like, you know – a mediocre hamburger, which is saying a lot. Yeah, Go, going from scratch to that, yeah, is is impressive. And the thing is that they've got uh, they're they're scientists, so this is you know stage one, and they're going to move on and on and on. Sure, it's like an incredibly impressive first effort, I would say. Yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, and the the the, the blood note, the 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 kind of sucking on iron note. <laughs> bueno, did you taste it that time, Nastasia? No, you didn't go to that event with me. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's one. Uh, two, uh, Harold was here last week and did not get to see the Amorphophallus titanum, the the giant, even titanic, shapeless penis flower, the world's largest single inflorescence. The actual, the, the largest branched inflorescence, Nastasia, is not from uh, uh, in the arums. It's actually in the Acaceae, the palm family, as I was told by someone at the Botanical Garden, ah. which is interesting because one... The families sound very similar, but the uh, – or the orders, I guess. Anyway, but the um, – yeah, so I saw it. Uh, when I saw it, it was not at max – by the way, so the interesting thing from a food perspective, and the reason why you bring it up is that uh, Amorphophallus uh, uh, titanum is uh, – or titanum, I don't know – is like first cousin 
And by the way, the flower in the wild gets to be about inflorescence. It's not a single flower, but it gets to be about 12 feet tall in Sumatra, where it comes from. And uh, it's pollinated by uh, carrion flies and whatnot. And so it smells. And this one smells uh, a lot, actually, like rotting mouse is what it smells like. It smells like rotting mouse. But it, it's, it's like first cousin, uh, if you consider genus relations cousins, it's first cousin to konjac, like what you make konjac out of, uh, the, the food stuff, which also smells, but is apparently a much more heady brew of scents, according to docs that you sent me, right, Harold? That's right, yeah. I don't remember exactly what the mix is for konjac, but, uh, but it's, it's the, the inflorescence, right? So the, the root itself, does it need deodorizing before it's used? No, 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 no. It, uh, literally, it doesn't smell until it opens up, and uh, it produces the stink in the inflorescence. And in fact, um, the inflorescence itself, uh, a portion of it will heat up. I guess due to um, you know to metabolic activity, will heat up a couple degrees above ambient to help release the waft. Um, <laughs> do you think you would have wanted to see that stuff? I didn't. I didn't even invite you because I figured you wouldn't. No, even, that's not your jam, right? You like flowers, but not rotting flowers. No. When I showed up at, uh, they opened uh, the botanical garden early. I showed up at nine a.m. and Dax and I went. We just walked in, and then at ten when I left. There was like the equivalent of a three-block line trying to get in to see yeah. a stinky flower. Just goes to show you the lengths that New Yorkers will go through to see a stinky flower. Mm-hmm. Not just New Yorkers. I mean, I was in from California. I saw that this was happening. I was watching the the uh, corpse flower cam regularly to see if it would it would open while I was here, and was sorely disappointed. In fact, you and I were in yeah, we were going to go touch. I was I was maybe going to delay my flight. I'm glad I didn't because it it stayed closed for another couple of days. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. So, uh, but you know, you should uh, go check out. There's got to be someone. I think Davis has a couple. UC Davis has a couple, but I think they're held kind of privately. They don't necessarily put them on display. Yeah, and I heard that actually someone had one in Berkeley a couple of years ago. Well, maybe that's uh, there's a and, yeah there's a yeah. wiki list. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> but did you you didn't get to obviously see them? No, one. heard about it after the fact. So listen, if any of you listening have in the San Francisco Bay Area or within, I don't know, probably probably a hundred mile radius or so, and you want Harold McGee to come smell your flower, I'm sure he will come smell your flower. Or if you're growing any form of, uh, of uh, carrion uh, fly um, or any sort of dung, dung uh, insect uh, pollinated uh, arum family flower, I'm sure Harold would love to come smell it. Am I wrong? You're not wrong, no. Yeah, no. yeah. I, I mean, like, to. you know, conjac. Yeah. Look, the Amorphophallus titanium, the corpse flower, has, uh, uh, you know, has the, the problem that it only blooms – it doesn't bloom for at least 10 years after, after it's you know, started, and then, and then it blooms once, and then uh, doesn't bloom again for another, like, four to seven, eight years. And so, and you the know, bloom is, like, 36 hours. Right? Yeah, at, you know, yeah, 24 to 36 hours. And, like, to make it even harder, it's, it's like, a very picky – you know, it really just wants to grow uh, in Sumatra. <laughs> and like nowhere else. So anywhere else you try to grow it, it's a, it's a huge kind of a, it's a cordial you. All right. So speaking of gardening, I have some stuff I brought. Oh, do you want to do dump meals now or do you want to do dump meals after the break? After the break. We'll do dump meals. Nastasia's sister, our dump meals correspondent. By the way, Harold, a dump meal is where you just take like, like, like a, a short list of ingredients, throw them into a crock pot, walk away, and then eat it. Uh-huh. Hence, you dump the stuff into the crock pot. 
and then that becomes your meal. Mm-hmm. And so Nastasia's recently college graduated sister is our dump meal correspondent. <laughs> and she called in and I was and apparently I was like horrifying to her. I was mainly horrified at the at the dump meal, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but you fixated on her washing chicken. You don't wash chicken. Anyway, um, USDA says wash chicken. Really? Oh, oh wait a minute. No, no they say right. don't they wash flipped. chicken. They yeah, flipped. don't right. wash like chicken. Three, four years ago, they flipped. Yes, you right. know, and 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 because it's going to spray spray salmonella yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Spray salmonella <laughs> all over the place. Uh, yeah, and but my point is, is that like this is yet another reason why like most people's recommendations are. Garbage! Because people flip back and forth. People, You ask someone a question. You ask a USDA person, hey, should I wash chicken? And they've never run the experiment. They've never run the freaking test. They're like, yeah, you should wash chicken, right? Me, it's just... Why the hell would you wash a chicken? You know what I mean? Like, like I'm not thinking about like this or that, a boop, a beep, a bop. You're going to cook the freaking chicken. Why are you going to wash the freaking chicken, right? Here's why I wash my freaking chicken. All right. <laughs> Because often when I buy a chicken, it kind of stinks. All right, this I'm not. I'm not saying anything against your chicken. I, li, li, but listen, listen, Harold. I remember this was oh two decades ago, back before duck was fairly common, right? As a thing you could buy uh, in a super. I mean, you could buy it, but you know what I mean. It wasn't something that they sold a lot of. So I bought a duck. And it was in one of those classic, like, poultry tubes that they put, like, chicken and ducks in, right? Mm-hmm. That seal in stank, and they, they didn't used to be modified anything. They were just tubes. And then uh, they would presumably freeze them in the tube, ship them, thaw them out, and then they'd sit God knows how long until somebody, some knucklehead who wanted to cook a duck, you know, because back then Americans cooking ducks, like, what, what are you, French? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I bought the duck, and I opened it up, and it stank. I mean, it stank. It stank. And, and by the way, what stank means in this case is lots of bacteria are growing on it, right? <laughs> and so, like, I was like, it's still good. It's still good. I can fix it. I can fix it because it was dinner. You know what I mean? People were coming over. It was dinner. I didn't expect that uh, all of a sudden my main protein, the centerpiece, this duck I had been thinking about, was going to be garbage. So then what do I do? I attempt to wash it off. To get the stink away. It still stinks a little bit. I put soap on the freaking duck to try to wash it off. And then I say to myself, oh, am I going to eat this freaking duck that stinks, that's going bacterially wrong, that is garbage, that is like just like, no, no, I'm not. And, and that's kind of maybe when like my aversion to watching poultry started, when I realized that I was using it as an excuse to try to serve my family garbage. And when I realized that I was a severe enemy of quality in that, I probably overdeveloped a reaction uh, in the other direction. You see what I mean? That's yeah. I'm just telling you like the, yeah. the analysis of where I come from on this on this poultry washing situation. Now, I think the USDA though, like it's like, you know, so that's the problem. It's like doctors when you ask them advice on on nutrition, they just say something that sounds good, they haven't actually run the test. Really the USDA person would say, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Who knows? I don't know. Do it if you want. You know what I mean? It's like in the absence of data, don't make recommendations. Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're just personal preference. Yeah. Or say, this is what we think might happen. So we think maybe it would be better not to. So if you have a chicken 
that you deem has like a little bit of smell, but maybe it's going to be okay when you eat it. You want to wash it. I mean, I think that's fine. I'm fine with that. But just they, like like de rigueur washing your chickens when you open them. Yeah. Why do it? Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, and usually when uh, the, the chickens that I buy, when they have a problem, it's on the inside. So I, I don't actually oh, yeah, yeah. mess with the outside that much. I blot it so it'll crisp up better, but I but I do rinse the inside. Right. Well, there's also like a lot like a, you know how when they do like a bad butchering and they leave a bunch of lung on the inside? Yeah. I'll rinse the lung out because, yeah. you know, it's just easier. Yeah. They're not a flip side. Some things have things that smell terrible in them or are, are tastings that aren't spoilage issues, and those things I rinse constantly. Fish. Fish, you know, uh, most of the time when you uh, buy it uh, whole, they haven't uh, cut the vessels along the spine and rinsed all that kind of uh, blood out. I do that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and stuff just happens on the surface no matter what. I mean, uh, right. rinsing fish makes a huge difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm totally pro rinsing fish. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I think, but the thing is, like, but you're rinsing. But USDA would say same problem, right? Bacteria. But this is why you shouldn't listen to them. You should rinse it if it makes it taste better, and not rinse it if it doesn't make it taste better. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we're in total agreement here. I, but like, I was, I apparently. Pissed off Nastasia's sister, so now she she claims she has a meeting or a she, boss's. That was quite a preamble to this whole yeah. thing. Yeah, she claims that uh, that she's not calling in because she has a meeting, but really she doesn't want to. She's like now she's filing her report, her dump meal reports with Nastasia. <laughs> but what makes it difficult is it's harder, it's easier for me to like you know go after things if I know exactly if I can query like why certain decisions were made or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. 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 Oh, so I have some stuff for us to taste. First of all, I brought the latest. Now, for those of you that longtime listeners, you will know that uh, uh, Nastasia and I, and I think maybe, did Peter was there? Was he there that time? Had some of uh, Harold McGee's delicious uh, walnuts. Harold's, Harold's, these nuts. But then we have a new version of <laughs> McGee's nuts here. <laughs> That uh, and you want to talk about them? I brought them so Anastasia can uh, can sample them. She's not, she hasn't had them before, so she can. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I went to Turkey a couple of years ago, and one of the things I did in Istanbul was visit a place that made baklava, and uh, we were given little samples of the things that they were making, and I was amazed at the flavor of the pistachios, which were compared to California pistachios tiny and dark, dark green and just incredibly aromatic. So I bought some and brought them back and shared them with you because I know you're a pistachio fan. And uh, I also uh, prevailed upon a friend uh, who may have been on the show, uh, Arielle Johnson. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Been a couple times. Yeah. Uh, So she at the time was at UC Davis. I was in San Francisco. I told her about these amazing pistachios. She said, why don't you bring them up to the lab over the weekend and we'll put them on a machine that's not being used and see if we can figure out why they're so different from the, the California. So we did a gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, olfactometry test on these two batches of, uh, of pistachios uh, and found that basically they have identical 
chemical compositions. It's just that the Turkish ones had like 50 times the quantity of the, the volatiles that gave the aroma. And they, they were so fragrant that they, to, to me, they smelled like mangoes. Right. So they were fragrant not in the way that like Bronte pistachios are. They were fragrant in a different way. Yeah. Uh, fruity. I mean, right, incredibly right. fruity. Now, bear in yeah. mind, for those of you that don't you know, pay attention to the botany here, they are actually related to mangoes. I mean, distantly. They're all anacardaceae, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway, so that, that was a wonderful experience. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, Oxford for the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. And uh, my Turkish friend, Aylin Tan, was there. And uh, we knew we were going to see each other. So she wrote me from Istanbul. This is like, you know, a week before the coup, uh, coup attempt and said, anything I can bring you. So I said, pistachios and pistachios and some pistachios. <laughs> so she brought me two different batches, which we've got here. One is the standard Turkish pistachio, which are larger. Do you like pistachios? Do you like pistachio? <laughs> Do you like pistachio nuts? Nastasia. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. So smell these. These are the standards. Mm-hmm. They, they so, smell like nuts. And then the the uh, special ones for baklava making, which apparently are not sold on uh, in the market generally. They're sold only to manufacturers. Mm-hmm. You get the difference? Yeah, this one smells more. Taste smells more. Yeah. Yeah. Nastasia, the, the poetry of your descriptions is... Remember not to chew on the mic. People freak out. I know. If they freak out. Daniel. What do you think? Good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. Really taste, taste a little mango in there. Mm-hmm. Something. I mean, they're they're super fruity. They're nuts, but they're fruity and not but, nutty. But they're. You know what? I I think I told you I had some black walnuts, American black walnuts that I mm-hmm. think had gone rancid and fruity as a result of rancidity. Uh-huh. Like so, it's like rancid fruity notes. Yeah. Uh, but these are not like that. These are good fruity notes. Yeah. These are so rancid. Uh, Aromas are are like fatty acids and alcohols and aldehydes and things like that. These are terpenes, so they're formed by the plant uh, early in the development of the nut, and I guess they get diluted with, as the nut gets bigger. I guess they're they're there to protect the nut, and so they're really concentrated to begin with, and then as the nut gets older and uh, the shell gets hard and that kind of thing. Um, maybe it doesn't need as much chemical uh, protection, so the, the flavor gets milder. So when you're young, you protect the nut. <laughs> you got to protect your nuts when they're young. Yeah, when you're old like me, you don't need them anymore. Useless. You're going with the yeah. Is that a Wu-Tang B-side, protect your nut? Protect your nuts. Oh, it should be. It should be. Yeah, so these are – now, the reason they don't harvest these normally is just they're more expensive. To do because you lose out on the harvest. Yeah, so they're uh, they're apparently not for general sale. They're only sold to baklava makers. And why do the baklava people care that much about like the quality difference of their nuts? Uh, I guess to make a better baklava. I don't know. See, don't but know. why don't they? But they must friends they, of quality. They must, friends of quality, but <laughs> they must actually believe that the other ones are better eating nuts. Maybe because they have them both, they actually must believe that the bigger ones are better eating nuts and these are better pastry nuts. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Maybe. Um, because otherwise there'd be a market. They just charge more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good question. Maybe maybe in a place that has pistachios galore, people are not willing to pay a whole lot of money for them just as a general eating nut. Yeah. Mm. So Nut eating. Oh, speaking of young 
uh, seeds, nuts. Uh, so I have this uh, pumpkin. So it turns out that I have this uh, garden patch up in uh, Connecticut, and it's um, it's like cucurbit fantasy freaking land. So like cucumbers go freaking bananas, and I didn't know this because I hadn't ever planted a pumpkin before. Pumpkins go freaking nuts. And I planted like a, a pumpkin that's actually a Connecticut variety. I forget the name of it, but it's from Connecticut. And it's one of the ones that's designed to become giant, like a couple hundred pounds. And uh, – and I was gone for a couple of weeks. I came, I came back and looked at it, and it's like Jack and the Beanstalk. The sucker had punched through both sides of the garden, and uh, uh, one of the pumpkins – I have to thin them out so that they get big, right? But one of the pumpkins that uh, I was going to consider keeping, in the span of two weeks, it had, it had grown through a, a fence. It was the size of like a tennis ball or a racquetball, uh, and it had grown into 10-pound pumpkin over the course of like two weeks. And it – it, it snapped itself off because the, the vine could no longer hold it over, through the fence. It was like through a, a – like a – what is it? You know, like a chicken wire fence. It was through it. It snapped it off and so I took it, right, because I'm going to harvest them anyway. But they, like there is almost no information on the internets about uh, young pumpkins. Even though I'm sure everyone who tries to grow big pumpkins is thinning pumpkins out, there's nothing, there's nothing on them. And what's interesting is the skin is very, very thin and delicate because you haven't uh, cured it at all, right? When you cut it open, the pith between the seeds hasn't uh, fully – it's like still kind of solid, so it's kind of hard to scoop it out. Uh, the flesh is actually really good. I made uh, I made uh, like a uh, a pumpkin parmesan with it. You know, like I, I I cut the pumpkin, roasted it down a little bit, but was gentle with it so it didn't get all smashed up, and then layered it like uh, like you would for like a lasagna or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I did it Mexican. I did it with Oaxacan string cheese and cotija because that's what I have in my fridge. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So and it's not bad. You know what I mean? It ain't. It look parmigiano's parmigiano, cotija's cotija, but it, it's good. It's more of like uh, you know like a Mexican. Italian pumpkin casserole. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. And then uh, pumpkins, I, pumpkins, New World, anyway. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So. And then, and then later, I took the rest of it because again, it's ten pounds. I'm not going to eat it in one day. I, I actually did hack it up with a pasta and uh, rehydrated uh, uh, shiitakes and more of an Italian style with a you know with fusilli and you know actual parmigiano. It was delicious, but. Delicious, but so they're very good, and you can actually eat them raw. And they have the texture of a melon, but they don't have melon taste, and they don't even have that much pumpkin taste. They're very light. They're like mm-hmm. the watermelon of pumpkins when they're like that. So there's mm-hmm. a, they're a lot. Uh, they're a more refreshing, even raw. They have a lot of latexy stuff. So you know how when you cut pumpkins, you your fingers get that like second skin on them, that gross second skin when you're cutting pumpkins, yep. it skins the hell out of your hands. Uh, but, you know, I just peeled it with a veg, uh, veg peeler, uh, chopped it up, and it's, it's, it's nice. It's refreshing. It's good. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's a lot less pumpkin-y even than, like, a calabaza melon, which is, like, pretty mellow in flavor. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And when it cooks up, it holds its flavor and doesn't uh, – holds its shape and doesn't mush out. Oh. So it stays – well. it's soft as hell, but it stays intact. It doesn't instantly pulp out. But the most interesting thing, which I brought for you guys to taste, is the seeds. The seeds are almost the size of full-grown pumpkin seeds, but – I salted these a little bit – but they're soft and you can eat them like cucumber seeds. These are totally uncooked but they're they're almost full size, like pumpkin seeds. I didn't. I just put add a little salt, but they're otherwise uncooked, unseasoned, just rinsed out of the pumpkin. Hmm. That's good. They're great, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
a little crunchy. Yeah. Very refreshing. They're they're chilled, which helps. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but like I I would mix these into a salad any day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I also roasted some, and they were good, but they lost some of that snap and texture. What do you think, Nastasia, hater of things? I like them. Yeah, they're good, right? Mm-hmm. So people out there who are growing pumpkins, I looked on the, like I say, on the internet. I couldn't find any good information. Someone was like, throw them away. They're useless. Put them in compost. Feed them to, you know, feed them to rabbits. Feed them to pigs. The fact of the matter is, is there's a lot of delicious stuff to do with these young pumpkins, and it's not insubstantial. I fed my family for two days, including <laughs> when guests came over, on this one freaking pumpkin that would have been called and tossed into a ditch by most people yeah young, chat, young pumpkin chat room is suggesting a pumpkin dump meal pumpkin dump meal pump dump pump and dump you know who mark ladner mark ladner it that's his favorite cooking term he's like when, you, when, you, when he's doing an event i'm like hey mark what'd you bring to the event no no pump and dump pump and dump it's like right it means like it means something that's easy to do at events you know you pump out of like whatever bottles and dump there, uh, obviously, he's doing it at a very high level. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, I brought some more crap to taste. Do you want to taste the poisonous stuff first or last? Last. Last? Uh, you, you stage it how you like. All right, well, just in case we die, let's start with the non-poisonous stuff first. So... Um, you want to take a call then after the tasting? I'll take a call, I'll take a call while, uh, while I'm, while I'm, while I'm sitting. Let me say what it is, and then while I'm pouring it, we'll take the caller, all right? So I have uh, – uh, I'm testing centrifuges out, and uh, I don't think we're going to talk more about the centrifuge today, but I'm testing centrifuges out. And uh, what, what that means is I have a whole boatload of uh, clarified orange juice like, like around my house, right, because I, I can just go buy it, right? And it, and it, it clarifies rough, in a roughly similar fashion to other citruses and things, which is a big thing that we're clarifying, the centrifuge. So I have like gallons of clarified OJ in, in my house. And so I was like, hey – I start fermenting it. So I've been fermenting it. This is my uh, first fermented batch. Now, I actually, uh, interestingly, like, um, I think it tasted better uh, when I first made it. I think this is like a month old now. Mm-hmm. So I think it tasted a little better when I first made it. Uh, but th- And this one was, I have a batch that I just made, but it hasn't bottle carved up yet. But uh, this batch was made with uh, orange juice, which is about 11 bricks, uh, taken up to about 15. Oh! And it got shaken up on the ride over, taken up to about 15 with uh, white sugar. But I have one with, uh, with honey as well. Uh-huh. But this is just pouring all over the ground is what it's doing. I'll say, hey, don't worry, it's sticky. No, I'm kidding. It's very dry. <laughs> it's like super dry. And what's interesting is, is that even though I don't really like clarified orange juice because the, the bitterness of the orange pulp is gone, right, mm-hmm. uh, when, you're, when you're using it, I actually quite like this because the bitterness uh, after all the sugar is fermented out uh, comes back. All right. So w- while I'm waiting for this thing to stop, uh, let me put it this way. The bottle was a little, uh, shall we say, excited. Uh, why don't we take a caller while I'm pouring this? Can I have a glass and stuff? You're just sitting there looking at me like it's like some sort of like. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hey, guys. This is uh, Tyler from UC Davis. Hey. How's it going? Yeah, go Impossible Foods. Oh, Impossible Foods, yeah. So, you, uh, Hi, Tyler. So, um, nice to hear so your my voice. Question is, I was wondering if there's a scientific reason for scalding milk or cream in the pastry recipe, since usually they're, they're pasteurized. Uh, scalding milk or cream. Um, well, uh, even when they're pasteurized, they're, they're, they've still got stuff in them. And... Um, 
you know, back in the old days, uh, it may not have been pasteurized. They may not have been pasteurized. Uh, at this point, you you may not know how old it is. So I guess it's, it might just be a way of sort of standardizing the microbiological quality. Wait, scalding? I, is it, is it, I, I was I, I was tuning out for one second because I had this uh, I had I was pouring stuff and getting stuff dripped all over me. But anytime I see scalded milk in a recipe, I think it's a a, a throwback recipe. Mm-hmm. Right? Which recipe are we talking about here? Uh, uh, just pastry yeah, any, cream any, and things like any that. Kind of. I mean. I think it's I think it's like a, a, th- a throwback, right? Mm-hmm. Could be. I mean, Could has be. anyone done a side by? I always follow recipes just because it's easier to follow a recipe than it is to have a failed recipe afterwards, unless you're specifically testing out a theory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something else that it's going to do is uh, is change the flavor. Uh, for sure. The question is whether at the end of the process of making whatever you're making, you're going to notice that flavor difference or not. But scalded milk, scalded cream tastes very different than uh, than plain pasteurized either one. What about uh, UHT pasteurized? Um, yeah, I, th- I think if you scald that, it's going to taste different too. I mean... The amount of time and the temperature that any milk product reaches, the longer it stays at that elevated temperature, the more the flavor changes. Yeah. And and the more the proteins are messed with and the more X, Y, and Z. So in general, when you're selling something in a store, you mess with it the least amount that you can, uh, you know, know, to have it sell before it spoils. What about Parmalat? You think scalding Parmalat's going to do anything? Mm, Parmalat. Um, yeah, that tastes pretty cooked <laughs> to begin with, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, as with all questions like this question, what I would do is a side-by-side, right? Just make the same recipe with and without scalding and see whether anybody notices any difference, whether you notice any difference during the process of the making you know, whether it makes a, a difference to the process. Um, my guess is that there are small differences, but they're not going to be that significant. Right. And especially for things like that, that you're not really relying on the chemistry of the milk. So I think like small amounts of heat difference and small amounts of, uh, of uh, changing the uh, conformation of, the, of, the, of uh, the ingredients in milk can make a huge difference in things like cheese making. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, but even yogurt making, I mean, uh, you, you get a much thicker set if you scald the milk first. Right. Yeah. But, they, so, but, they, but here you're, but there you're relying on the chemistry of the, the casein and, you know, and, and the micelles to, yeah. to what you're working on yeah. in like a pastry cream. You're not, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't guess. I don't know. Yeah. It's my theory. Sticking to it. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. All right. To taste this, what do you think, guys? Just, it's just orange juice. Yeah, it's kind of weird. You have a weird flavor. You have a weird. It's orange juice. I'm washing. That, that noise is me washing the uh, the the orange juice off my hands. But it's, is it drier than you thought? Yeah. It's really dry. That bitterness at the end is from the orange juice. That grapefruit bitterness at the end of it mm-hmm. is present in the OJ. Completely masked by the sugar. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I like it. The bitterness to me is refreshing, like beer bitterness. It's almost like it's got, like, a bitterant in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and the fruitiness is toned down, I think, because there is so little or no sugar. Yeah. So there's just not that kind of reinforcement from the taste. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. I like it. I'm pro. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Sunday morning brunch. Yeah. 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 This thing's uh, right now clocking in probably somewhere between 8 and 10% alcohol. Mm-hmm. So uh, higher than beer, but lower than almost anything else, like lower than, you know, any normal wine or anything like that. All right. So Wait. should... What should we? Oh, should we? Do we have? To, should we take our quick break and then come back? No, I would just go through. You got to get to that guy's question. All right. So, uh, let me answer the question before we eat the poison, or have you guys distribute the poison. So, I brought uh, some poisonous stuff. So, the um, uh, pot of what's it called? Pot of potophyllum, the the American uh, mandrake, uh, the may apple is uh, an awesome-looking leaf. You ever seen that leaf? It looks crazy. The leaf looks awesome, Nastasi. It's like super green, big leaf. They're really low, and each plant only has like a couple of leaves, like two leaves, and they, 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 um, they grow by underground runners, so they kind of self-propagate themselves. And they produce... The entire plant is poisonous, and so it was, it's been used... Uh, as poison uh, by Native Americans. It's used as a, a medicine, as a huge cathartic in small amounts. Uh, the resin, which is obtained from the uh, rhizome, I think it's a rhizomatic thing, uh, is used as a topical wart remover, but uh, there's been a, people who've over-applied it and, uh, they've, and they <laughs> die. Uh, so this is my lead-up to having you eat it. But the fruit of the mayapple is uh, incredibly delicious once it's ripe. Once it's ripe, it's incredibly delicious. The problem is very hard to get them because as soon as they ripen, they, uh, they're eaten by all the animals. So uh, last week I harvested them all when they were still a little green and then I wrapped them in plastic in case they self-produce ethylene so that they would uh, you know, increase their ethylene production. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is, uh, is, uh, is, is the mayapple a climacteric fruit? Will it self-ripen after it's been removed? Answer, yes. It will uh, soften and it will yellow. Uh, and so uh, my theory is, is that if it smells tropical and is soft, that it will not be poisonous. Now, you don't want to eat the seeds because the seeds are also poisonous. Well, <laughs> it's thought that the seeds are poisonous. So if you guys want to inspect these, uh, I brought two of them with me. If you guys want to inspect these while I get to the uh, questions that we have. All right. Mm. All right. Rich McDonough wrote in. Um, by the way, we, had a, we have a question in about uh, cocktails for Burning Man, but we're saving that for next week when Jordana Rothman, who has made cocktails at Burning Man, is going to be on the show to discuss it because we figured it would be better to just have someone on the show who's actually done it so that – and, and uh, I'm the only person apparently who gets sassy with Jordana. Yeah, right. Yeah, true. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, Okay. Uh, thanks for doing the show. And by the way, uh, he calls out Nastasia, 
Peter, who's not here, but um, you, know, you can stand in for Peter Harrell. So you're, you're new engineer. That's David, and the ghost of Jackie Molecules. So nice, the ghost of Jackie Molecules. I uh, have enjoyed doing pressure infusion uh, in the EC or ISI, depending on uh, what area you're talking about. So this is a, we're talking about nitrous infusion, where you use uh, nitrous oxide to inject a liquid into an item under high pressure, and then you boil it back out and you do fast infusions. Uh, I've just got a hold of a large tank of medical grade nitrous oxide. Uh, now listen, listen, and two point five and five gallon corny kegs, which will take up to one hundred and thirty psi plus a high pressure regulator, which will manage around one hundred and twenty psi before the safety valve kicks in. Um, you've mentioned pressure infusion in a keg was possible in liquid intelligence, but didn't go into details. As this is still much lower pressure than an ISI, I assume I need to adjust recipes and let it sit for longer. But how much longer should I go without risking bitterness from materials such as cacao nibs? Any other tips and tricks you can share would be great. Cheers, Rich. Okay, uh, okay. So listen, it's actually not uh, that much. Uh, it's not that different. So if you go uh, on uh, Amazon, look inside. Nastasi, can you get Amazon? Do you have that on your phone? I don't have the app. Uh, if anyone, actually, hey David, can you uh, do Liquid Intelligence? Look inside and then uh, look up pressure chart and see see whether it's there. I thought I had it on my phone, but uh, I don't. But in Liquid Intelligence, my book, which you can buy on Amazon, uh, the um, there's a, a chart of the uh, pressures inside of an ISI bottle, uh, and it literally lists directly what your particular recipe will produce inside of the bottle for a given fill amount uh, at a given ethanol concentration with a given number of chargers. Now, um, there are two numbers there. I think I gave both numbers. If not, I'll have to go and find I'll try to post a picture of it. Uh, the number is the initial pressure, which is important, but not the most important. And second is the final pressure, which is what you're not going to be able to achieve the initial pressure, but you probably will be able to achieve the final pressure. So the, the issue is, is that if you have a, a five gallons quite a bit, I would do it in the 2.5s because um, it's not – like unless you are a gorilla, it is not easy to vigorously shake a five-gallon container. Uh, under pressure. It's just not. You know what I mean? Uh, oh, oh, another thing. Uh, I forgot to mention. Oh, stupid, 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 stupid. Listen. The difference between an ISI and uh, a keg is that when you're doing a ISI, all of the gas is delivered at once at a high pressure, and then that pressure drops as you shake it. In a corny keg, you are delivering the pressure at the pressure, and you must shake it until you get to an equilibrium pressure inside. So you have to keep the uh, the valve hooked onto the keg as you're shaking, which adds to the difficulty of doing it. So you have to keep the thing on as you're shaking. You have to shake vigorously. Do not turn it upside down, or stuff will leak back into it because those things, like I say, don't have check valves in them. So you have to hold it and shake the ever-loving hell out of it, up and down, up and down, up and down, until you stop hearing gas come out of the tank. Then you know you've reached uh, um, equilibrium, relatively close to equilibrium, and then you let it sit for your predetermined amount of time, and then you vent it. Now, if you can't get pressures close to the ones that you get in the ISI, but my feeling is you can. I don't know if David has found the, the relevant document or not. I, ha- I have it. Where am I looking, Zach? Uh, let's just, for for craps, like look at the final pressure on, uh, I think I gave 40% ethanol in a half-liter whipper with two chargers. Is that on that chart? Where is the chart exactly in the oh, book? Oh, you have to just ask for a pressure chart, and it should find it somewhere. Oh, okay, one sec. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, you should be able to get to it. So as long as you – with that caveat that you shake it until you stop hearing a lot of gas go in, which means you've reached equilibrium, everything else should be the same. The venting, everything else should be the same. One more note of caution. 
do not, do not, do not. I don't care if you do whippet balloons with it or whatever. The way people die with nitrous oxide once they have the tanks is they put a mask on their face. Then they pass out, and there's not oxygen supplied. It won't kill you if you had actual, if you had a proper oxygen mix going in with the nitrous while you were breathing it, you would pass out and you wouldn't die. Uh, and if you remove the mask, you revive very quickly. The real danger is people asphyxiate themselves with the mask, and it happens more often than you'd think. So uh, do not, under any circumstances, ever. Uh, put a uh, mask uh, over, like, uh, attach a mask to this and, like, go uh, and do uh, mask shots of nitrous with your buddies. Just don't. Just don't do it. Um, all right. So uh, we'll see if David can come up with this stuff. And meanwhile, you want to – Harold, are you down for tasting or not? Does it smell tropical? I have a question. Yes. Have you tasted one? Last year. Let me, let me see this one. Uh, this – I tasted last year's. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> last year's, but fully ripe. Yes, 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 yes. So this really is, we really are guinea pigs here. Oh, yes. Is that right? Okay. Oh, it smells very tropical. Let me see here. Oh, yeah, smell that. Even if you don't taste it, smell that. I'm going to taste it a little bit because, come on. Mm. Yeah, des- describe, describe, the, describe the flavors, uh, the aromas, rather. Uh, actually, to me, it smelled a little like cherries, like benzaldehyde kind of. Plus passiflora. Uh-huh. It's got okay. passion fruit note, too. Okay. So a little sulfur action. It's good. It's really good. It might. It's one of my favorite fruits. And this tastes like what you tasted last year? Yep. It's one of my favorite fruits. It's got tropical. It's got banana notes. Don't eat the seeds. Spit them out if you get any. It's got, like, banana notes. It's got, like, passion fruit notes. It's got, like... Mm. That is good. Yeah. That is freaking delicious, right? Stas, you up for it or no? No, oh, thank you. <laughs> no, thanks. All right, I do so like listen. These, these seeds, everyone should do these. Everyone it's should so do the seeds. All right, hey, so, we got one minute. All right, we got one minute. Why don't you do, give us a dump meal report? Oh, she made, um, she made root beer pulled pork, uh, pork butt, root beer, soy sauce, salt, and pepper. I said all together. She said, yes, how else? <laughs> and so what was the, what was the, uh, she said, I didn't like it. Uh, I why? Said, why? why? She said, "Tasted like ass. It just tastes like root beer, but the pulled pork really pulled easily." I said, "But it tasted bad." She said, "Wasn't great." That's it. Tasted like ass, huh? That's a technical description. In the, because it was pork butt, or because she's an know. aficionado of ass tastings. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, hard to know. So listen, I had I had a question I didn't get to. Uh, I was going to talk more about uh, our 23-year-old friend's espresso machine problems, but I guess we'll get to that next week when Jordana is on. And she'll I'll berate her for her cocktails, and she'll berate me for my espresso machine uh, advice. Um, anything uh, Anything you want to add, Harold, to this uh, tropical fruit, uh, temperate, temperately grown tropical fruit taste? Uh, we need to grow more May apples. Yeah, May apples is freaking delicious, <laughs> right? It's freaking delicious. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>